Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Now, Rob, whenever people ask me about you, I say, Rob, he's a very polite guy, great guy. He's a writer's writer. It's the technique. It's the attention to detail. That's how I describe you. I bring this up, Rob, because yesterday I had the pleasure of spending a couple hours with the takesman's takesman, and that would be (laughs) Charles Barkley. Now, longtime Open Floor listeners understand my respect for Barkley's craft. He, with TNT and their PR team, they tend to hold these, like, I don't know if you want to call them take summits, uh, about twice a year, all-star before the season, where you just kind of have, like, free access to Barkley and Shaq and Kenny Smith uh, and Ernie Johnson, and they just let loose with the takes, Rob. Unfortunately, this year's take summit was, like, the morning after that crazy Lakers versus Clippers opening night game in Los Angeles. So I'm not totally sure that they were, uh, they might have been a little worse for wear, let's put it that way. But Charles Barkley still brings the heat every time, Rob. He just, there's something about his personality. He's been doing it for so long. It's They're so well honed. He knows exactly where to jab. Uh, I just go into these situations almost with more anticipation for the game than I have for the games. And I'm curious, like this is open-ended question. How many people in the NBA do you think are better at basketball than Charles Barkley is at his job? <laughs> it's a great question. I mean, 
especially as a media member, you kind of go in cycles with this thing where I know there was a point at which I would kind of roll my eyes at Inside the NBA and like the particular brand of takery that they engage in. And then at a certain point, you really do have to appreciate the art of it, as you mentioned. And as we talked about previously, like how could you craft a tweet that could maximize like the, the biggest negative response possible? And there's a similar kind of like mental gymnastics involved with being Charles Barkley or with being Stephen A. Smith or with being these like really high level takesmen in terms of finding the, you know, it really is tough to search for that exact vein that you need to plug into in the American sports psyche and then just jab at it over and over and over until people just go crazy. And I think, you know, Chuck is so good at that and so good at identifying really what is kind of the lifeblood of basketball. I don't think there's a single NBA player right now who's mastered the game like Chuck has with the takes. And here's why I say it. You brought up uh, the commentary, uh, you know, like LeBron and, and Maury and all of that, right? Like, how could you get yourself fired? So LeBron catches 72 hours of heat calling him a communist for, you know, basically standing up for his own financial interests and China, but sort of dancing around it. Charles Barkley comes out a week later and just basically just rips the sheet off he just says look LeBron should stand up for his money Daryl Morey had a stupid tweet that screwed with all of his money why should LeBron's money get screwed up by Daryl Morey why should the NBA be dragged into all of this which is just even more cynical and hot takey <laughs> and controversial than LeBron yet Charles's magic is he doesn't catch any of the hate he's like bulletproof like Teflon it's really just uh, remarkable I don't know how he's ascended to this level in society uh, certainly, I'm jealous uh, because I was getting death threats all of last week from Lakers fans who thought I was uh, a little too negative on their preseason outlook. Um, but uh, all of this brings me to what I think is actually the topic of the week because Barkley weighed in on it. It's been on my mind since Tuesday night watching that Clippers-Lakers game. Um, there is a legit rivalry at the top of the NBA right now. LeBron James versus Kawhi Leonard. You could say it started back in the 2013 and 14 finals when Kawhi was still in San Antonio. You could say it went to another level when Kawhi decided, you know what, I'm not going to team up with you, LeBron. I'm going to have my own team in your town. I'm going to go head-to-head against you. You could say it went to an, another level when LeBron comes out in that first quarter like a man on the mission, uh, you know, turnaround jumpers, driving kick threes to, to Danny Green. Uh, you know, Kawhi got off to a little bit of slow start, but then it kicked up to another notch when Kawhi just went into takeover mode, man, on Tuesday night. And so I'm curious, um, are you are you buying what I'm selling here? I mean, we, we've been looking for a big-time rivalry at the top of the league. Kevin Durant obviously is out with injury. For years, it was Dur- uh, Durant versus LeBron, or some people might have done Steph versus LeBron. You know, not kind of a direct rivalry because they're different positions and different player types. But are, are you seeing it? Are, are you gathering this momentum uh, in this rivalry? I am. And, you know, I really enjoyed your column on that specific point on just the differences between those two guys. And it's a weird one because, you know, historically, when we look at the great NBA rivalries, you know, trash talk is a really important part of it. Personality is a really important part of it. LeBron certainly has that in spades, but he's also, you know, LeBron can be a pretty passive aggressive guy when it comes to stoking a rivalry and managing expectations in a matchup and things like that. And then Kawhi is kind of like, passive passive I guess like so there's just a complete vacuum in terms of the verbalizing of the rivalry and and as you mentioned too LeBron trying to insist that this isn't one and yet when they get on the court 
we see, and maybe it's the Clippers-Lakers thing, maybe it's just LeBron coming into a new season and trying to show that he's ready to take this thing seriously again, but he's getting back in transition. He's defending like we really don't see him defend in the regular season anymore. He's engaged and trying in a way that really is just not common on an every-night basis for LeBron, and I think he, he really wanted that game, at least it seemed that way from the way he was playing, and yet everything was still pretty difficult. And I think that has more to say about the Lakers as a team than anything about LeBron specifically. But that matchup is always really rich in terms of, you know, whenever you have two great players playing the same position, that's a nice thing, you know, the interchange there. But also the way that Kawhi as a defender can challenge LeBron and what that brings out in him and what that brings out in their matchup. I mean, this is, it's going to be a fun series between those two all year. No, I can't wait to watch it the rest of the year. And you know what I'm noticing, Rob? is that Kawhi's starting to feel his personality a little bit. I don't mm. know if you saw that New Balance commercial, but they've got him with a, a keychain that's got a crown on it. He says, this is my city, L.A. The, Clip, the Clippers' whole marketing program right now is we over me. Uh, that feels like a shot uh, at the Lakers and at LeBron. They, they had uh, some words during their pregame introduction that was basically uh, streetlights over spotlights, you know, again, uh, trying to maybe hit a different theme than LeBron and the Lakers. They don't want to be that glitz and glam organization. I feel like the Clippers, and especially guys like Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, I mean, they just eat that stuff up. And Kawhi is a powerful enough figure here, as we've seen with him being able to just give out a backpack to every single kid in the city because that's just how they roll now with the Clippers. Uh, he has enough juice that if he didn't want this tension, if he didn't want this rivalry, they would not be playing it up like they are. He would not be in the New Balance commercial hinting that he's the new king, right? So I actually think that in a very Marlowe from the wire type way, Ka uh, Kawhi doesn't want to be seen necessarily out there, you know, pounding his chest. I'm the new guy, da 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 da. But he's planting these seeds very subtly, and I, and I thought actually. It was revealing in the post-game uh, interview from LeBron James when he's asked, is this a rivalry? And he's trying to say, no, no, no rivalry talk. We don't want to deal with this. It's, you know, <laughs> These teams aren't where they're going to be. And I think if we gave Kawhi a truth serum, he would say, yeah, it's a rivalry and I'm better. And he's not wrong. You know, I, like that's the exercise that we had to go through with the top 100. And then I'm sure we'll be talking about ad nauseum over the coming months between those two guys and Giannis or whoever else you want to throw into that conversation. But Kawhi is a better player than LeBron right now, and it's it's tricky because you always want to account for just how devastating LeBron can be in a playoff series, and with that level of focus, and when he's really able to kind of pick you apart as a passer and as a creator, you want to leave room for that, but within the broader conversation and, and the bigger scope, Kawhi is just better. It's just a matter of, is he going to be healthy? How many games is he going to take off? But when he's on the floor, I mean, we saw like he just, he converts so many shots that are just impossible to guard, that are that are so tough to take away. And at the same time, he'll steal away so many possessions just by literally ripping the ball out of good good basketball players' hands, taking away rebounds from guys, blowing up sets. I mean, it, he really is an incredible watch right now. It's uh, remarkable to me how matter-of-factly you just declared that Kawhi Leonard is better than LeBron James. And I knew you were going there because I saw your top 100 and you put him over LeBron. Being in the building on Tuesday night when LeBron came out like, you know, uh, like he did, I was like, well, this makes sense. You know, Kawhi's a little bit rusty. He didn't play a lot in preseason. 
Paul George is not even playing. LeBron hasn't played since March, so he definitely wants to make a statement. Anthony Davis has been killing it during the preseason. It would make sense for the Lakers to value this game more than the Clippers and wind up winning. And that only lasted for like 10 minutes, you know, and then the slow drip of Kawhi regaining control over the action, getting to those tough shots that you're talking about, the turnar- uh, turnarounds in the paint, the fadeaways in the corner, just, you know, pounding people, getting himself, uh, you know, to the foul line, uh, you know, the Clippers hustle plays late. LeBron looked a little bit tired to me uh, by the end of that game. Again, he was missing some shots around the basket that I think two years ago he would have made. I don't know how much we want to uh, say this is age-related. Uh, it definitely seems like it's a factor uh, at times. I'm not sure that his burst or his physical pop necessarily is where uh, it was two years ago. I think that's pretty safe to say. And I know that will get me lumped in with all the people who are overreacting on Twitter and say, oh, LeBron's washed up. LeBron's washed up. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that just like every other basketball player ever, he's subjected to gradual decline at this stage of his career. We know where the miles are at. Uh, and when you just see him side by side with Kawhi, who is you know seemingly healthy in his prime from a skill standpoint, and incredibly confident and comfortable in his new environment, I agree with you. Uh, that was my takeaway from uh, that, that first game. Kawhi is just a better player. And this is why I led with uh, Charles Barkley off the top, because here's what Charles Barkley had to say. And look, his voice, to me, carries a lot of weight in these kinds of conversations. I think to a certain degree, he is the face of NBA commentary, right? I asked him yesterday, Kawhi or LeBron? He says, I don't hesitate. At this stage, Kawhi is a better player than LeBron. He does everything better. He's a better defender, a better scorer. He's better at imposing his will on the game. You just saw him will a good Toronto team to the championship. They played Philadelphia and then Milwaukee in the playoffs. And it's fair to say they were underdogs in both of those series. But Kawhi would not let them lose. And then I went on to say, well... You know, LeBron James has been viewed as the best player for almost a decade. I mean, isn't this sort of like a transition moment? Barkley goes, you don't get to have the mantle of best player for your whole life. It passes on. Anthony Davis is going to have to be the best player on the Lakers if they're going to win the championship. Father time is undefeated. When it hits, it's a shocker. You start to realize how hard the game is. When you're 25 or 26, the game is easy. I knew it was time for me to retire when guys who couldn't play at all were kicking my butt. It's tough. One of the things that makes you great is your ego and your pride. Guys keep hanging on because you think mentally you can still do it, but you can't do it physically. Now, obviously, he's not writing LeBron off into the sunset here, right? He's not saying, okay, this guy's career is over. But I think he's giving a you know a straight dose of a harsh reality for what superstar level guys uh, in this position have to go through. When you see those words from Barkley, does any part of you uh, get a little bit of cognitive dissonance? Like, are you are you confused at all or like kind of like thrown for a loop? Because I'm still in this mentality where we've watched LeBron dominate for so long and flip the switch for so long and always have it kind of come up his way uh, that to really just say, hey, that era is done. You know, we're in a different chapter of Le- LeBron's career. It is a little mind-bending still for me. How about you? Well, I think, 
you know, in LeBron's defense, I do think we need to kind of wait on some of this until we get a chance to see him in a seven-game series that's really up for grabs. You know, like playing with a, a shorthanded Cavs team against the Warriors a couple years ago doesn't really register in that way, but you give him Anthony Davis, you give him a flawed but at least a decent team in terms of the supporting cast and the Lakers, you let them get healthy, you let them get into the season, and we see kind of what they are come April and May, and maybe that's a different conversation, but... I mean, LeBron, I think, is still really incredible, and he's also about to turn 35 years old, and maybe he's going to have the best year ever for a 35-year-old. I think that's very possible, but he's 35, and like that was the part of what Barkley said that resonated with me was the idea that it becomes hard, that everything just gets a little harder than it was at 25 or at 27, and like you mentioned, in terms of you know just things like converting around the basket at quite the same level, where we see that LeBron can still go up and get the hammer dunk in transition— but we also see that maybe his touch is a little off on the layup, you know, on, on some of those drives where he's just not converting in quite the same ways that he used to. He's not able to get the same separation of the burst that he's that he's used to. And for a guy like LeBron, the frustration that comes with that when you're playing on a team that is a little cramped for spacing because you're playing another center with Anthony Davis most of the time, that you do have a lot of role players in that team you're going to be relying on who aren't going to hit their shots every night, who are going to do some frustrating things. And what that does to LeBron over the course of the year in terms of understanding, I am not the player I was. I'm still great. I'm still one of the best players in the league, but I'm not the definitive leader of the league anymore. And yet I still have to make this work. And and that that dynamic is going to be the one that I'm curious about and going to watch and that'll probably put the most dissonance in it for me. Look, I agreed with a lot of what Charles Barkley had to say on this subject. The one thing I disagreed with, though, was this idea that Anthony Davis has to be their best player if they're going to win a title. I think we've seen where teams peter out in the playoffs with Anthony Davis as their best player. I actually think if the Lakers are going to win the title, LeBron definitely has to be their best player. It has to be kind of like that 2017 finals vibe where he's just doing absolutely everything, putting people on his back throughout the entire postseason. And I think we're now in this situation where if his game is slipping, you know, even 5 or 10% this year, where we still view him as a top five player, but we don't view him as the best player in the game, uh, that starts to be a question. You know, that starts to get into uncomfortable territory, I think, if you're a Lakers fan, where uh, you're really counting on him to be that guy. The roster was constructed for him to be that guy. The types of role players they brought in uh, were counting on him to sort of be that guy. And Uh, You know, you also see just in game one what they look like when he's off the court, you know, or what they look like in the brief moments when both he and Anthony Davis were resting. I mean, it it wasn't necessarily pretty. So um, some of that for me is a little bit of skepticism in Anthony Davis. Some of it is uh, a little bit of trepidation about where LeBron's at uh, in his career age wise and and skill wise right now. Uh, But I do wonder if the Lakers are going to wind up having a little bit of a lower ceiling than maybe their fans had hoped coming into this year. Well, I think the benefit of having stars like LeBron and like Anthony Davis is, and you know, let's look at LeBron specifically, given the stage of his career that he's in, he can still take you over the top. He can still make the spectacular plays. He can still be there for those big moments. But I think he needs more help in getting to them. And, and like that's something that they just did not have in this first game. And some of that's their roster construction, some of it's their injury situation. But like LeBron, to quote LeBron, 
needs a fucking playmaker. Like he needs help. He needs somebody <laughs> who can take the ball up, who can dribble more than a couple times. Like he needs, and maybe like as, as much as it pains me to say, and I'm reluctant to say this, but like Rajon Rondo coming back from injury might help that a little bit. Getting, no, 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 no. He's <laughs> okay, not too far, answer. too far, too far. But and getting, also sorry, Elizabeth for Rob's yes, gross profanity there. Sorry. Uh, I mean, LeBron is the one who should apologize. I'm just quoting. Okay. Well, I'm with you though. They do need a playmaker, right? Um, and do you think that they're trying to have Anthony Davis be that guy kind of a little bit? Or maybe that could be uh, a direction that they go as a secondary playmaker. I mean, clearly he's not, uh, you know, the point guard, you know, the typical like Kyrie Irving style guy. But I wonder if once they're in situations where they're not doing all these posts up trying to exploit mismatches like they did on game one, where Davis is going to be sort of in that role as a temporary fix. I mean, what do you think? Does that have a chance to work? Do you see them going that way? Or do they just need to go out and find somebody? I think it can definitely work to an extent. But again, like if if you're going to, whether you want Anthony Davis to be a more prominent playmaker, whether you want to keep posting him up with this frequency, you got to put him at center. Like you need to clear the, the decks a little bit because right now, like you really can't run that much pick and roll between your two best players because whoever's guarding Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee is just going to cinch over and be able to to stop it up a little bit, clog up the lane. You need a little bit more room if you're going to do that. And I think AD has really progressed to the point where he can pass out of some stuff. He can handle the ball a little bit more than he used to. I think he's really developed those parts of his game. But you really want someone who can even shift LeBron out of having to be the primary playmaker all the time. And so to me, AD is kind of a secondary guy. But you want someone who can start possessions where LeBron can come off an action, who can get a little more momentum going into his plays. So he's not just like pounding the rock from the top of the floor every time trying to make something happen. Because we know LeBron can do that. And he can make things happen a lot of the time, but there's also going also to be some turnovers. There's going to be some issues with spacing or timing, especially with a new team that's coming together. And so you really just want somebody who can free him up to be a little bit, a little bit more unencumbered as LeBron. That's well said. Did you have any other takeaways from Kawhi's performance on Tuesday night? And we're, we're tending to focus here on the LeBron side of thing because I think it might be a little bit juicier, this idea of the end of his reign, right? But for Kawhi... A little bit of a slow start early, a couple, you know, silly turnovers with like a traveling and a charge, Uh, but then he really gets it to his groove. The crowd seemed like they were behind him at times. It was a a great atmosphere, kind of the fans going back and forth a little bit um, in the building. It really did seem like kind of a seamless uh, uh, orientation for him with his teammates. You know, I didn't sense a lot of like, oh, there's not enough room for a guy like Lou Williams to do what he does. It seemed like their defensive intensity was already, you know, pretty much on point. Um, I didn't, you know, see any necessarily bad body language. Uh, and, of course, they were super excited with the win. I mean, Beverly's always looking to talk trash and uh, bounce around the court at the Lakers' expense, and he got to do that uh, one more time. But any other takeaways from the Kawhi side? Well, there's this weird thing with Kawhi where he's not quite as plugged into a team concept as someone like LeBron is or as someone like Steph is in terms of the way his game synergizes with teammates. You just don't see that much interplay because he is such an isolation player. He is such like a one-on-one creator and he's so hard to stop in that context. Like he'll run pick and roll, he'll do some, some normal stuff. But you don't see him just kind of lock into a team system in any particular way. And we even saw that, I think, with the Raptors as they're winning the title. Like that's just kind of who he is. And the flip side of that is you drop him into the Clippers and everything just kind of works. Like, it took him a little time to kind of get his game going, 
But in terms of the way everything was functioning for the team as a whole, I think everything seemed like where it was supposed to be. Like the players were in the right places. Kawhi had a good sense of where and when they were going to be there, how to get to his shooters, all that good stuff. Like it, it's really tricky to for a superstar to kind of pick up and just take off running. And so, yes, there's some stumbles initially, but the Clipper bench is so good and gives him, you know, such a cushion for the nights where things are just a little bit off. And then as we talked about earlier, Kawhi's just able to convert so many difficult plays that I think it makes up for for any of the kind of gaps that you might otherwise see. But something that struck me too is just like for for as good as that bench is, and we talk about like Lou and Montrez a lot and how good, the, you know, that pick and roll combination is, but even just seeing, oh, you know, Paul George is out of this game, Kawhi Leonard comes off the bench and you can just like roll out Mo Harkless, like a really good wing defender who now, you know, LeBron or whoever else is going to have to to deal with them for a little while. There's just, there's so much depth that's deployed in different ways. And I think that's what's really going to be the Clippers' strength this year is, you know, we talked about their versatility, but just the waves after waves of every kind of contribution. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I was in my column about Kawhi and LeBron. I tried to highlight some of their differences, obviously personality differences, hype differences, sneaker differences. You know, LeBron's got clutch sports and Kawhi's rep by his uncle. I mean, you can just go right down the list of all these things that are different about those two guys. LeBron having the hype all the way through high school, Kawhi being, uh, you know, much more under the radar coming into the NBA. Uh, they weren't even like head-to-head rivals in those finals that I mentioned earlier because, you know, Tim Duncan was still sort of the, the headlining figure, uh, you know, kind of legend, uh, you know, at that point of his career, still getting the, you know, the Duncan versus LeBron treatment. But the one thing that these guys have in common completely at this stage of their career, Kawhi and LeBron, is that when the ball's in their hands, all eyes go to them and everybody's cool with it. You know, like you're describing, he plays a lot in isolation, but it's not the kind of ball stopping that angers people, right? Like there's just a trust level. It's like, all right, Kawhi's going to work. We're all going to stand here if he gets doubled, he will make the right pass. Uh, if he gets his shot, he's probably going to make it, and we're all cool with it. I mean, that's sort of the Clippers' vibe, and it's tough sometimes when you're dropping a, uh, a high-usage player like that into a new framework, and it's his show, and now he's the face of it. Uh, that was an opportunity for tension, and it's still possible uh, that they have to work things out once Paul George is back because he's going to want a lot of touches too, and it gets difficult if you're a player as good as Paul George to regularly, you know, watch somebody else go to work. But I just think there's that respect factor uh, for his skill level and his ability to deliver where all eyes are on him, just like all eyes have been on LeBron when he's been on a court for basically his entire career. So that is, uh, you know, what comparison point we could take away from Tuesday night. Uh, And the way they do it, you know, in terms of LeBron with the pass, Kawhi with the methodical jumpers, uh, it's just a fascinating contrast. And I do think it's going to be a huge storyline here all season long. No, total agreement. Can't wait to see what's next. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, 
Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, Rob, let's uh, shift gears here. We got a great question from Rahul in my hometown of Beaverton, Oregon. So thanks, Rahul, for sending this in. He emailed openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And Rahul writes, I'm writing today to address a topic I heard being talked about by Stephen A. Smith, another you know legendary takesman. He writes... Who are the five players with the most pressure in the NBA this year? Stephen A. Smith's list is Kyrie Irving, number five, Ben Simmons, number four, James Harden, number three, Russell Westbrook, number two, LeBron James, number one. And Rahul wanted to add Jamal Murray, a guy we talked about last week, uh, you know, from your piece in Sports Illustrated, uh, to that list as well. Now, I bring this one up, Rob, because it's another Barkley take, okay? Barkley was going in a little bit on Paul George. He says, look, Paul George, quote, hasn't had a lot of success in the playoffs. In Indiana, people said he didn't have a lot of help, but Indiana did just as well without him. Then Paul George goes to play with Russell Westbrook and Steven Adams, and they still have no success. There is a lot of pressure on Paul George this year. So playoff P uh, got called out a little bit by Barkley. I think Playoff P deserves to be on this list of the uh, the guys facing the most pressure. Uh, but what about you, Rob? Is there anybody else who you think is, is facing an unusual amount of pressure this year uh, You know, in terms of delivering in the postseason? Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Paul George. I want to do a quick, a quick audit of his recent playoff history because I've heard you and Andrew rail on Playoff P a little bit. Uh-oh. I get where you're coming from. But let's look at the last four years. So starting with 2016, Great series by Paul George against the Raptors, goes to seven games, ultimately isn't able to get it done, but is going to that series with a pretty shorthanded team, ultimately, like Barkley described. Then in 2017, runs against LeBron and the Cavs, puts up 28-9-7 in that series. Pretty incredible performance, all told, again, against a much better team. I think the toughest out is probably, you know, the the uh, what really put playoff P on the map against the Jazz, where 
he had a pretty okay series overall, 25-6-3 for that series, but losing to the Jazz in the way they did, I think, is what puts a little bit of a stain on his reputation. And then this year, with injured shoulders, averages 29-9-4 for the series. I mean, I, I get that we're talking about four years in a row in which he hasn't gone out of the first round, and you're always going to take some heat for that. But what more do we want Paul George to realistically do here? Well, it sounded to me like from your audit, the the results were L, 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 L. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was four L's, right, from the last four years. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, No, look, I'm being a little bit facetious. Um, It's a very good point, and it's an important point for balance. It's not like Paul George is out there putting up, you know, Bojan Bogdanovic numbers for the Pacers last year in the playoffs, right? Uh, I do think that in certain situations, his efficiency has taken a little bit of a hit. Um, That was certainly the case against Portland. Um, I think this most recent loss stings a little bit because he did have that three-pointer drained on his head and he did whine about it. Uh, and they did just co- sort of carry themselves in a certain way, um, you know, all season long about, you know, how they felt, you know, they were going to, you know, have, you know, take care of unfinished business, I think was the phrase that they were using, right? Um, the disconnect comes from this idea that he could be third in MVP voting and not get out of the first round, Right. And yes, it's tougher in the Western Conference, but it just seems like if we have a player who we're saying this guy's a legit all-NBA talent, he is playing pretty well in the playoffs, usually that translates to winning series, right? And I think that Barkley's got a certain point. I mean, they were definitely underdogs in a, in a few of those series. There's no question. But, I mean, the Utah one, like that just did not go according to plan at all. And then I, I kind of felt like, that series had a hangover effect almost in the Portland series where very early in that Blazer series, I was saying Oklahoma City is just not going to get this done. There's just no way. And Portland's playing without their starting center. They're so heavily relying upon a couple guards. Uh, Paul George is an elite perimeter defender who you expect to be able to kind of change a series, you know, from that perspective. And they just got beat, uh, you know, pretty, pretty cleanly, pretty handily. So, I think I'm with uh, Barkley on this one. You know, I think that he does have a lot to prove this year, but I also think he's in a situation where he's not going to have to prove it. I think he's in a very uh, comfortable position heading into the playoffs where, you know, you've got Kawhi, who's going to be an absolute killer. He's done it multiple times. And you know, you've got a lot of other supporting pieces there where you're not going to have to do too much. You're not going to have to carry that burden. If you have an inefficient shooting night, it's not going to tank your entire team and, and basically turn into a loss. And so I think that, uh, you know, if I'm Paul George, I'm feeling pretty good. Well, I think, and that's what separates, you know, to go back to your MVP voting point, what separates the the Giannis's and the Hardens and the Kawhi's from a guy like George, who was having an incredible season before his injury, but kind of puts him in a different class of player. And it's it, to the point where if you have this, this really upper tier level of superstar, you're just not getting bounced in the first round, pretty much regardless of matchup. Like Those guys are just good enough to carry you. Paul George is maybe in the next category of guys who are about as good as you can get otherwise, about as balanced a game all around, who can really be a a great complimentary star for a guy like Kawhi, as we'll see when he comes back. But I I think that is kind of the right framing for him. And in terms of the pressure, I, I do think it's kind of alleviated by having Kawhi there, by just being in a position where the Clippers, I think, are going to be good. Like, I, I just can't imagine a scenario short of injury where they really end up exiting the playoffs all that early. Uh, and so I think some of the other guys around the league probably have a little bit more pressure, including a surprise entrant this week on the entire Milwaukee Bucks franchise after Giannis told the Harvard researcher that uh, it's going to make it a lot more difficult to stay in Milwaukee if the Bucks underwhelm this year. 
Yeah, I'm staying away from that one. I mean, we're, we're <laughs> quoting like syllabus, like lectures. Okay, come on. Let's, uh, we're, we're digging too deep here as a society. Let, let Giannis breathe a little bit. One guy I had on my list, though, was Chris Middleton, man. Mm-hmm. I think he's under the uh, the crosshairs a little bit. A couple of reasons. First of all, people have now heard of him. Uh, you know, that was not necessarily the case two years ago. Uh, second of all, he's got the gigantic new contract. And third of all, we saw that Giannis needed a little bit more help in last year's playoffs. There needed to be a very reliable second scorer, and we know it's not going to be Eric Bledsoe. Malcolm Brogdon's not on the team anymore. I think a player like Brooke Lopez uh, is incredibly valuable, and he had some moments in the playoffs where he was stepping up, you know, hitting just crazy threes, changing games. Um, but when you get into those you know, late-game fourth-quarter moments— He's not creating, you know, so you need somebody to just, you know, ride shotgun for Giannis. I think that leads us to Chris Middleton. And as much as I've loved him over the years, and I still do love him as a player, I think he could work, you know, very well in in a million different team contexts. And I think he's really good for Milwaukee. And I think they had to pay him. Um, I've got my doubts, you know, if it comes down to Milwaukee versus Philadelphia and Philadelphia wins that Eastern Conference final series. There's a pretty good chance we're circling Middleton and just saying, look, they need a more from him. Well, in a world where kind of the pervasive criticism of the Bucks is that a team with Chris Middleton as its second best player isn't a title contender or isn't good enough to beat this team or that team. I mean, the Raptors just won the title with Kyle Lowry probably as their second best player. And Lowry and Middleton are at least in the same neighborhood, you know, in terms of talent, in terms of production impact. To, to say that, you know, a team blank you know a blanket statement is not good enough to win with this guy as their second best player I think puts you know a a bullseye on his back in a big way especially you know given that we've just seen it given what we know he can do given how good the Bucks should be and how wide open the East frankly is I mean this this is going to be a big year for Chris yeah I think the comparison there is it doesn't matter as much the quality of your second player if your first player is just unstoppable right if he just gets into that groove and I think that's sort of what carried Toronto and that could be the same path uh, for Giannis as well this year. Uh, we will have to wait and see. Was there anybody else on your pressure list? Uh, I agreed with Stephen A. Smith, obviously, on J- uh, on Russell Westbrook, uh, you know, James Harden uh, to a lesser degree. I think Ben Simmons is a good one. Uh, what about you? Did you have anybody else uh, on your list? The only other name that came up for me, and it's someone we've talked about a lot already, is Anthony Davis, just in terms of this being his first season with some real stakes and a season where Ask any of LeBron's teammates over the years, when that guy's on your team, it puts pressure on you in a very different way. You're asked to account for a lot more than at any of your previous stops. And so to see how Davis deals with this year and with all the limitations on the Lakers roster, I think that's something worth watching too. Yeah, for sure. Another guy I've got is Donovan Mitchell, and it's similar to Rahul's pick of uh, Jamal Murray. Uh, I don't know if you saw Utah's debut. It was a weird game, man. Mike Conley just could not hit a shot, uh, was really struggling, and yet... We saw the benefits of their off uh, their offseason moves right off the top. I mean, Donovan Mitchell is dancing in space, spin moves going to the basket, um, getting really clean pull-up mid-range jumpers uh, in the crunch time. And then when the ball was moving around the perimeter, even though they weren't hitting their threes, they were getting very clean looks with good ball movement. Uh, and so to me, I think it was kind of an ugly win for Utah over Oklahoma City. But at the same time, I think it was a, a hint of what could be coming for them. Uh, and that sets up Mitchell to reclaim a little bit of the reputation maybe that he lost uh, in last year's postseason, uh, you know, fairly or unfairly. I did think he maybe took a little bit too much heat. All right, Rob, let's uh, move on here. We've got another question related to opening week. It's from Tariq, and Tariq is 
Honestly, I don't know why Tariq still listens because he is the world's <laughs> biggest Kyrie Irving fan there is. I really appreciate him, honestly, because he is just ride or die for his guy, Kyrie, and he's stuck with open floor for months and months of hate listening. So, Tariq, shout out to you, man. I appreciate this email. He writes, we have our first 50-point scorer of the season, and guess who it is? Kyrie Irving. Uh, in overtime, uh, a loss to the Timberwolves on Wednesday night. He says, if only the Nets could shoot 60% on free throws or finish at the rim. So I think Tariq was really hoping to get off like a 1,500-word email, you know, calling me an idiot and, and going in a, just big time standing on Kyrie, but he didn't get the win, so he couldn't do it. Tariq, I totally understand that frustration. Uh, Rob, what did you make of Kyrie just coming out of the gate with the 50 spot uh, for the Brooklyn Nets? I mean, that's a pretty good, you know, pretty good welcome to New York moment. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty unbelievable exhibition. And just of all the things we've seen Kyrie do over the years, the shot making, the creation, the handle, all of that came through in a really a really interesting way and obviously a really big way. And it really did highlight, too, I think, some of the differences between his context in Boston versus Brooklyn, where if he has a performance like this, I mean, I'm sure the Celtics would have been thrilled that he put up 50, but playing and operating in this way where he is this level of ball dominant and is low, you know, to be fair, something that the Nets asked of D'Angelo Russell and Spencer Dinwiddie last year, too, where they're surrounding pieces. You know, Joe Harris and Jared Allen, these guys are not, like, campaigning for touches. They they know who they are. They know what their role is. And they need guys like Kyrie to be a creator. And it really gives him a lot of latitude to do that kind of one-on-one game that he's so good at. That really he's better at than almost anyone in the league. Maybe there are a couple guys who can create a little bit more efficiently than him. But he's so good at manufacturing those shots. And I think he has so much room to do that in Brooklyn. And whether that will translate to wins quite as often as you know a healthier team concept, I think is certainly up for debate. But in terms of what you're getting out of Kyrie, this really might be kind of a max out season from Kyrie before we get Kevin Durant back in the mix next year. So with all that being said, though, Rob, I mean, did it end in perfect fashion (laughs) with Kyrie spinning all over himself, trying to get the isolation jumper? Of course, he like somehow pulls the ball out of nowhere to get a shot up and the shot almost went down. It was a pretty remarkable save from Kyrie. But did we see the negatives of the Kyrie experience in Brooklyn here on the first night, too, where it's his idea that one is a tie game and he's in this head to head shootout with a guy like uh, Carly Anthony Towns and they're going back and forth. Uh, because there's no Kevin Durant, so there's not necessarily major expectations or stakes. It just has to be the Kyrie show and everybody watches and, and he gets to try to go ice, uh, isolation one-on-one and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Uh, did you have a problem with how that game ended? You know, I'm probably more on the skeptic end of the, of the Kyrie spectrum uh, than the alternative, but even even I can't hang this one on him. Like, he was great. It wasn't a little bit funny, though. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's, a point, there's a poignancy to it for sure. I mean, he's just kind of stumbling. Look, I'm not trying to kill Tariq here either. Uh, I just think that they're better off if they don't mortgage their whole franchise to become the Kyrie show, okay? And they put him out there before the game. He had a very nice uh, moment addressing the fans. It's very clear to me that the Nets fans on live uh, online have just completely embraced Kyrie. They're all in on the Kyrie experience. And I just think there's going to be some ups and downs, guys. Like, just brace for them. It seems like... They're opening with a very trusting and an open-minded and open-hearted embrace of Kyrie, and I just almost worry on their behalf a little bit. And I just also think, you know, in that situation, if you're Minnesota and you've got your best perimeter defender, Josh Okogie, on Kyrie, I mean, 
you're never happy with the ball in Kyrie's hands as a defense because he can, uh, you know, do so many different things, but you know, the clock's winding down, you know, he's going to shoot a jumper. He's not going to try to get to the basket in that situation. Um, I think you're okay with how that played out. I thought the defense um, was excellent. Um, you know, Kyrie was sort of his own worst enemy uh, in terms of, you know, losing his balance on the spin move. Uh, but I think he he kind of bailed out Minnesota's defense a little bit there. And I, I thought that was a game, frankly, that Brooklyn should have won. So uh, we, we do have to mention that uh, while we're also you know praising you know, Kyrie's phenomenal uh, start to the season. Speaking of that Minnesota game, though, Rob, I don't know if you saw just the incredible box score performance uh, from a guy named Andrew Wiggins. Obviously, it was a tight game the whole way. Minnesota wins by one. Andrew Wiggins manages to put up a minus 26 in 36 minutes. He scores 21 points on 27 shots. He registers zero assists, no defensive stats, um, no three-pointers, two free throw attempts. Um, Is it too early to say he needs to be moved to a bench role? Is that, am I overreacting? Because that was maybe my biggest takeaway from opening week is that they have a new front office regime garrison rosas he didn't draft andrew wiggins he didn't trade for andrew wiggins is it time that we just have a a very frank conversation about andrew wiggins uh internally if you're the minnesota timberwolves well i think the trouble with that if i'm remembering correctly is that a lot of that minus 26 came when he was trying to carry some kind of lesser second unit situations. And so if you're going to move him to the bench, if you're going to put him in a place where he's going to be more of a second unit guy or a second unit scorer, you have to be comfortable with those kinds of losses because he's just not, his game doesn't lend itself to that when his shot is off, when he's not able to kind of get into his stuff, which as we've seen, given the shots that he takes and the diet that he generally, you know, partakes in, he's certainly susceptible to that. And so I, I, you know, I, I will say this for Wiggins, like, he gave them some timely shots when they needed it at a time when they weren't getting a lot outside of Towns in particular. He had a couple big offensive rebounds. Like he, His game wasn't without its positive contributions, but obviously it's pretty rough at this point. Like I think the expectations have been fully recalibrated for Wiggins externally, and it's a matter of you know the Wolves needing to fully understand kind of the player who he is and who he's going to be, and Wiggins in particular understanding who he is and who he's going to be. No, I think you're right, to, to be fair. It wasn't a complete write-off game, but it, it was not a good performance. And I think, to me, it's more about you have to get through to this guy at some point, right? He just needs to play harder. He needs to be more locked in. There were some moments late in that game where everyone else is going all out, you know? Back and forth, down the stretch, lots of hustle plays, lots of big shots. Kyrie's hitting, you know, crazy runners. Carol Towns is answering on the other end, so on and so forth. And Wiggins... Just kind of doing Wiggins things, you know, floating at times in frustrating ways. And when I'm just looking from like a roster building, lineup building perspective, I hear what you're saying about, uh, you know, are you exposing yourself to, you know, tough times if he's in the second unit and he's not capable of carrying that group. But I also just wonder if for the sake of Carl Anthony Towns, you just need to build the best five-man group that you can build around him. And to me at this point, it's Jeff Teague and whatever three and D wings you can throw around towns is the best group that you can put out there. Uh, if you're Minnesota and I would include obviously Covington, uh, as one of those three and D type guys. So to me, I would just start Okogi. Um, I would be playing him a lot more minutes. I thought he had some nice, uh, stretches during last season. He was a good find for them. Uh, they talk about him a lot as a, a big time worker. And then I would say, Andrew, you know, go win your job back. Uh, I think you're, you've reached that stage of your career where, 
Um, you know, yes, you have the gigantic contract. Yes, you have the hype from being a number one pick, but it's more about results at this point than it is about, uh, you know, hype or reputation. And you're just not living up to it. Well, I mean, I think there's definitely an argument for any team in Minnesota's position to do everything possible to maximize a player like Towns. Like he's so far and away the most important thing your franchise has going that everything should be conceptualized around him. And if moving Wiggins to the bench or adjusting his role is part of that, then so be it. But I think ultimately the Wolves just, they can't treat Andrew Wiggins as if he's a second star. They can't treat him like they're going to stagger him in town's minutes and that's going to be okay. Like you need more going on because Wiggins has shown that he's he's really not going to give it to you on a nightly basis in terms of, like you're saying, the hustle, the investment, the defense. And he, he's going to, you know, take X number of kind of bad shots a game, regardless of what you want your team to do otherwise. It, it puts them in a tricky spot because they don't have a lot of alternatives. But, I mean, ultimately, it's kind of something that, even if it's not moving him to the bench, I do think they have to be very frank over the course of the season with themselves and with Wiggins as to where he's going to be. We got another great opening week question from Abdul, who emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And Rob, it makes me so happy when the Open Floor Globe comes through with the emails when they're watching games. They just finished watching a game. They'll, they might tell us, hey, I was arguing with my friend about this on text messages, or I was in the bar and I heard some idiot say this. We love that kind of instant response and feedback. It just furthers the conversation so much. Abdul says... How many players can score 32 points and grab 23 rebounds and still have nobody care? What is it about Andre Drummond that inspires such apathy in viewers of the NBA? Rob, do you have any theories? There's a weird thing around the Pistons in general, like the anonymity of that franchise. Or not anonymity, because they're they're obviously clearly a well-established franchise historically, but in the present tense, it's it's hard to get people, I can say this as a writer, to get people to read about the Pistons. Like, there's obviously <laughs> a certain number of fans who are Pistons fans, but like, yeah. they're... Wait, they're, slow down, though. <laughs> are you sure that we still connect the Bad Boys Pistons or even the mid-2000s Pistons with this group? Like, to me, as soon as they had the uh, situation where they basically just, like, walked out on their coach, they had that mutiny. Remember that? Like, right. I don't know, six or seven years ago? As soon as that happened, it was like, all right, now you have forfeited all the banners from prior uh, <laughs> the, the prior years of the franchise, and now you're just this new group that we just do not have to take seriously. Well, that's the thing. is like certain franchises can get away with five or six years of being out of the playoffs like I mean I think the Lakers are one of these teams who they could fall out and as soon as you know, a guy like LeBron comes back it's oh this is a huge team that the national basketball audience will pay attention to again and the Pistons are not one of these teams they they are a team that historically has done well they've got some banners you know they've had some some really great groups but ultimately in terms of like franchise intrigue they just don't rank very high. And I think that, that you know, a guy like Drummond suffers from that. Although, to be fair, I think part of the problem here, too, is that Drummond is a guy who puts up huge box score numbers. He is a guy who who can have these kinds of nights, and yet we still see on balance where the trade-offs are. And I, I don't want to speak too soon about Drummond's year this year. Maybe, you know, he comes in and is a totally different player and has a totally different kind of impact. But we've seen this a little bit before from Drummond. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't celebrate 32 and 23. That's incredible. But... Ultimately, we, we kind of have an idea of who Andre Drummond is, and part of that is putting up some numbers that, in a certain sense, are, are you know have some empty calories involved. Yeah, I think, uh, Abdul, I think Andre Drummond is a little bit underrated at this point. Uh, but I also think that when you see a lot of the teams around the league going four out and five out, there's just a lot of rebounds for big guys to be able to get. And I do think that 
those high volume rebounding numbers that we used to really get excited about when someone would get like a 2020 like remember Kevin Love when he was doing it like game after game and it was like this just awakening moment of oh my god like this guy's MVP candidate just because of the you know he was getting those uh you know box score benchmarks that you're describing I think the luster has worn off on that a little bit in part because uh, of the, the the spreading out in part because stats are just juiced because of the the high pace the NBA has been playing at uh, in recent years. And so I think uh, that's part of it. And that doesn't just apply to Andre Drummond. I mean, I think like Hassan Whiteside last night, I know there was a lot of excitement for his debut in Portland. I think he had like 19 rebounds, but you're mentioning the trade-offs. I mean, the trade-offs are in crunch time, Whiteside is not able to get out and contest Nikola Jokic on back-to-back three-pointers. Jokic hits both three-pointers. The Blazers lose. So all those 19 rebounds are fine, but you're also needing to take into account some of these other things that are happening on the court and happening within modern basketball. And uh, I think a lot of traditional centers who are non-shooters, and and certainly Drummond is one of those, uh, are going to be suffering from that context. I also just you know think, Abdul, I mean... Fans like guards, fans like wings. You know, I think it's life is tough if you're a big guy. This is one of the things my dad used to drill into my head because he played center in high school. Always fit, feed the big guy uh, on the transition fast break. Always make sure that trailing big gets the basketball because their lives suck. They're not going to get the attention. They have to do all the hard work. They're going to come home with the most bruises. Um, you know, they're not going to get the girls, quote unquote, although he did pretty well for himself, uh, my dad. Um <laughs> But I just think that's a fact of life for a player like Andre Drummond. What do you think, Rob? No, it's it's unquestionably part of this. And, it you know, there's there's a big difference between Kyrie Irving putting up 50 and Drummond putting up these numbers, but it, it's not as far apart as you may think for, for just that reason. I think guards capture the imagination and the attention of basketball fans in a different way. It's not fair as, you know, a, a pickup big man myself. I, I resent this fact and I hate it, but it's it's a fact of life. Yeah. Hi, mom. And also you did pretty well for yourself too. So it's, that's not a blanket statement that applies, but I just think, you know, big guys, they do get the short end of the, uh, the stick. A lot of times we got another question. Uh, and this one comes in from Brandon from LA. He writes, it was great to see how special Pascal Siakam is and that Fred Van Vliet is completely ready to take over this Raptors squad. Okay, Brandon, pump, pump the brakes. <laughs> Uh, I love Siakam scoring 34 points and 18 rebounds in the debut, but it took him more than 25 shots to get those numbers. It's pretty evident that Siakam is going to get his points, but he's not going to be very efficient because he played the same way during the playoffs last year. That's why Van Vliet is so important to the Raptors in their future. Uh, They need to lock him up. And then he wonders, who has a better chance of making the NBA Finals, Toronto or Golden State? So I kind of hinted at this on the Surprises podcast I think actually Toronto has a better chance. Uh, Obviously, a much easier path. I'm a big-time believer in Pascal Siakam. It was exciting to see him, uh, you know, come out with a bang after signing that new max contract. That's what you want to see from your guys. And, Rob, I'm just kind of curious. When you're comparing, like, how Pascal looked in his first game to, like, Jalen Brown with the Celtics or Buddy Heald with the Sacramento Kings, some of these other young guys who get these big contracts, uh, you know, you, you kind of expect them to, to come out and make a statement. And for Brown, it was a whimper. And for Buddy Heald and the Kings, it was a disaster against Phoenix on the road. I mean, they just got absolutely clocked. Uh, so I was just any takeaways from that group of guys who got extension uh, contracts, we're not going to judge those deals off one game. Like, don't get me wrong. That would be completely ludicrous uh, and silly. Uh, but what'd you think? I mean, honestly, I'm still stuck. Is is scoring 34 points on 26 shots not good enough anymore? 
Well, I mean, I, I guess the argument would be that, you know, Pascal is going to be heavily reliant upon twos, right? And I think, you know, he goes that spin move through the paint a lot. He takes some pretty tough shots. And we did see some real fluctuation in uh, his efficiency in the playoffs. You know, there's like some nights where he's just, he does, can't miss. And it's just like, oh my God, this guy's arms are so long. He's shooting 85% from the field. What do you do? And then there's other nights where it's like, he just needs to dial it back from like seventh gear to sixth gear. <laughs> and, you know, maybe he would settle in a little bit more comfortably. Uh, but your, your point is taken. I mean, I think the threes versus twos thing is obviously really important, and that's going to be the variable for him is if he's getting to the free throw line like he was in that game, then it's going to be fine. And if he's converting, again, as you said, every shot and every spin move, then it's going to be fine. But there are going to be some inefficient games. I, do, I, I think that's important to account for. It's, it's such an interesting extension market this year because of so many guys got their new deals. And then you got a, you know some other veteran guys, the Brad Beals and the Joe Ingleses in that group too, who also got some extensions on, the, on their current contracts. It's just, it's setting up this 2020 free agency to be such a disaster. And, and not to harp too much on, on guys like Andre Drummond, but like somebody is going to make a huge offer to Andre Drummond. Someone's going to make a huge offer to Brandon Ingram because who else are you paying for at this point? Like so many guys are off the market. We're assuming Anthony Davis is going to be off the market. It's, I don't know who you're going to be signing to kind of change the trajectory of your franchise. And so I, I just have a feeling somebody's going to talk themselves into one of these second or third or fourth tier players as being the guy of their future. And it's, it's, it's going to get pretty dark for those teams pretty fast. Rob, I'll be honest. After this summer, I'm cool with it, man. Like this yeah. summer was way too much. OD, extra, whatever cool phrase that you want to use. It was just way, way too much. I'm okay with uh, you know an off-year summer uh, where we can all kind of freak out about Andre Drummond's number and then move on to something else. I- I'm completely fine with that. Hey, I want to close with one final question. This one came in from Alex. This is more life advice, Rob. And you know how we do it at the open floor, Rob. We want to just kind of enrich people's minds, bodies, and souls. And so sometimes we get people who just, you know, they need us to steer them in the right direction. Alex writes, this past weekend, I went to a PR conference in San Diego, California. I live and go to college in Cincinnati. So it was a rare opportunity for me to go to California. I had never been before. Unfortunately, the last day of the conference was on Monday, and everyone who came with me decided to stay until Tuesday night and fly back overnight. We didn't get to see the city a ton during the conference, so that final day, everyone went to the beach and explored. I decided to fly back a day early so I wouldn't miss the opening of what could be the most fun NBA season to date. When everyone asked me why I wasn't staying, a wave of guilt washed over me, and I lied and said I needed to get back for work. Guys, should I be ashamed that I left one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to to sit at home alone and watch basketball? That's from Alex. Great question, Alex. (laughs) Rob, uh, I mean, put on your psychologist, your psychiatrist hat here, uh, maybe your big brother hat here. What do you have to say to Alex? I mean, Alex, look, I mean, we're, we're all clearly of a piece here as as basketball junkies. I think that's safe to say. But what are you doing? Like, wh- <laughs> I think my, my, my fundamental problem is that you never had to choose. Like, stay in San Diego, go to the beach and explore the sunshine. Then, you know, West Coast games start at 4 p.m. Roll back to your hotel or to a bar or to a restaurant and watch the games. And then the beauty of it all, the games are done at 10. You could even catch a red eye home that night if you want. I'm just I'm frustrated because we live Ben we live in an age of efficiency and I I think Alex here fundamentally kind of missed a golden opportunity here. 
I just hope that his dorm room or his apartment is like incredibly comfortable. Like he ha- he better have a man cave where he's got like certain types of pillows all set up for his like viewing experience because you're right. This was a complete disaster of a decision-making standpoint from Alex. First of all, Alex, if you ever have to choose between California and Ohio, come on, bro. And honestly, as penance for this, you should probably have to transfer to the University of San Diego. I don't even think you should stay in Cincinnati. Uh, That's how glaring and and backwards your decision-making was here. Uh, We do have televisions in California. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware. They are available. Um, And you should be able to watch these games on your phone now anywhere you want to go. Even, you know, just hop on somebody's Wi-Fi and stream that game. You know, I'll be honest. Sometimes when I'm walking the beach getting my miles in, Rob... I might have a game on my phone. You know, I might be multitasking. That can be dangerous. You know, bicyclists, you know, people on scooters, you know, potentially they could hit you and and cause an accident, but I'm not the worst multitasker. I can kind of get it done. At the very least, you can listen to it. Um, Alex, you blew it. And and in general, one of my life uh, mantras, whenever I go to a city that I've never been to before, even if it's for a work trip, if I can squeeze in an extra day or an extra two or three days, uh, like Toronto for All-Star Weekend or you know North Carolina last year for All-Star Weekend, I always do it. It's never a bad idea. Even if the weather is horrible, which it wouldn't have been in San Diego, uh, getting those new experiences in, you know, trying to uh, you know add a little bit to your mental palate uh, in a place where you, maybe you've never been before, that's what it's all about, man. So you screwed up here. Um, you're going to have to transfer. Uh, you're going to have to come back to San Diego as quickly as possible. You're going to want to go to the Torrey Pines hike. Uh, don't go during the middle of the summer. You might get heat stroke. It's, it's pretty dangerous up there because it, it does get pretty hot. It's beautiful. The cliffs are unbelievable. Watch out, though. There is a section where there's a nude beach. And like most nude beaches in America, only men show up. So just be ready for that. I stumbled into that one accidentally one time, but there's a lot of great things to do in San Diego and you blew it. I, I wish I had better news for you, Rob. We did it. We're at the end of another episode. Thanks so much for all your commentary. Thanks for humoring me on my Charles Barkley love. Uh, we will regroup next week with more opening week takes, maybe some more of those uh, ex- contract extension takes too. We didn't dive in super deep on that uh, quite yet. I didn't see anything truly heinous, uh, but maybe you disagree. Hey, Open Floor uh, Globe, you can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. Once you get to our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. I'm on Instagram at ben.golver. Rob refuses to plug his, but that's okay. We love him anyways. Hey, Rob, until next week, I will talk to you. Later, Ben. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.